So we're picking up this morning in our series through Ephesians. As many of you know, we are here in the first chapter, and we are looking at verses 3 through 14, making our way through those verses. And this morning, we come to uh, verses 8 through 10, but let me read verse 7 to just uh, connect where we've been. In him, speaking of Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us uh, in all wisdom and spiritual insight, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. So we have been considering, as you know, the spiritual blessings that belong to us who are in Christ. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, and we've been looking in detail at those blessings. We've been looking at the fact that we have been chosen to be holy and blameless before him. Uh, We we looked at being predestined to adoption as God's children. We've seen that we are accepted or highly favored in the beloved. And then in our previous study, we saw how we have been redeemed and forgiven And all these things have come to us through the riches of his grace, this grace that he has lavished upon us. But that's not all. There's more to it than that. And along with the riches of his grace, we read here that he has also given us wisdom and spiritual understanding. So now Paul is bringing to us another of those spiritual blessings that he mentioned. And it's the blessing of spiritual wisdom and insight into the things of God. But uh, more specifically here in our context, it's uh, insight into the future plan of God, the mystery of his will. But let's think for a moment about this idea of spiritual wisdom and understanding. A correct understanding of spiritual things can only come by the Spirit of God. It has nothing to do with a person's intellectual capabilities. You see, God has done things in such a way as to uh, eliminate the, um, the, the, the emphasis on uh, human intellect and things like that, which generally, of course, lead to arrogance and so forth. But uh, God doesn't work that way. He takes uh, the simplest of people and he reveals deep, profound spiritual things to them. This is how we come to know the things of the spirit. It's not because of our great intellect. It's because of the working of the spirit of God. And, And Paul made this clear in his first epistle to the Corinthians, He wrote there, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. 
But he who is spiritual, he who is spiritual, meaning he who believes in Christ, discerns all things. And Paul writes there, quoting back from the Old Testament, as it is written, I has not seen or perceived, ear has not heard or uh, actually understood, nor has it entered into the heart of a man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. But, he says, God has revealed them to us by his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. So you see, we understand spiritual things because of that work of the spirit. And anyone, it doesn't matter what your IQ is. It doesn't matter if you're the most brilliant person uh, to ever walk the face of the earth or a person who's not so brilliant. Uh, doesn't matter because this is a spiritual thing and God gives a spiritual understanding and insight. In 1955, Martin Lloyd-Jones preached on this very text at Westminster Chapel in London. In response to the suggestion in his day, a suggestion that is still with us today, I might add, uh, the suggestion being that because man had advanced so much intellectually, the truths of the Bible were no longer relevant. This was his comment on that. He said, "The mind of man is at at its the mind of man at its best, whether the first in the first or the twentieth century, is never adequate. To the natural man, spiritual truth remains a mystery always." It was a mystery nearly 2,000 years ago. It is equally a mystery today. The new astrophysics makes not the slightest difference. We are concerned with God, man, sin, and the splitting of the atom is completely irrelevant in this realm. To say that the age of the neophysicists demands some new kind of truth and understanding is a denial of the very basis of the Christian faith. He went on to say, modernity makes no difference at all. The revelation is found in the Bible and it remains there unchanged and unchangeable. There is nothing additional in the 20th century and there never will be. God has revealed the mystery. Therefore, to talk about the modern mind and modern man is to deny the scriptures. There will not be, there never can be, any advance on what has already been revealed. Whatever a man may be, and however great his natural abilities may be, if he is not enlightened by the Holy Spirit, he will not and cannot understand spiritual truth. I read that because it's so relevant today. He wrote that, or spoke that in 1955, uh, but that mentality that was prevalent then is even more so prevalent today. The suggestion today is the same suggestion. Oh, well, you know, we're so much smarter than previous generations of people. We know so much more than they did. Certainly, the Bible cannot speak to us today. The Bible didn't know certain things about man that we now know. That's the that, that's what we're hearing. That, that's coming down to us through the social philosophers. But I couldn't agree more with Lloyd-Jones. There's nothing new under the sun regarding man. Man is still 
in need of spiritual revelation in order to understand the things of the Spirit. And so Paul says that God has given us, he's lavished upon us his grace, and as well as his grace, uh, he's lavished upon us this understanding, this spiritual wisdom and insight. And Jesus put it like this. He said, I thank you. He's, He's speaking to his father. I thank you, father, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent. And of course, he's referring to those who are wise and prudent in their own eyes. You've hidden these things from them and you've revealed them to babes, even so, father, for so it seemed good in your sight. You see, here's the wonderful news. It's a a level uh, playing field when it comes to the knowledge of God. No one is at an advantage over anyone else because of their um, intellectual abilities or, or no one's at a disadvantage because of a lack in that area because this is something that transcends that. This is something that that God brings to us supernaturally. And so the, the person who is the least intellectually capable is still uh, able to know the things of God and experience the things of God in, in, the, in the deepest and most profound way that anybody else could. You know, it's interesting. As you look at church history, you find that uh, there, there were men who were uh, certainly uh, intellectually uh, extremely capable, brilliant, brilliant minds, and, and God used them. But then you look at others who did not have necessarily those same intellectual capacities, but you find that God also used them in just as extraordinary ways. Or you could even make the contrast between Paul the apostle and Peter the apostle. Both apostles both used greatly by God. One's a scholar, one's a fisherman. And yet there's, there's no difference in their, their spiritual understanding. So this is something we need to realize. God has given us all we need to discover those deep things of the Spirit. He's given to each one of us the... Uh, outpouring in abundance of wisdom and spiritual insight. And then he says in verse nine, having made known to us the mystery of his will. Having made known to us the mystery of his will. God has made known to us things that others do not know. This is a family secret, if you will. Now, the word mystery, when we think of mystery, of course, uh, we commonly think of, uh, you know, something that is puzzling. If you're a man, you think women are a mystery. They're puzzling. We, we just can't really understand what goes on in the mind of our wives. It's incomprehensible. That's not the meaning of mystery in the New Testament, though. Interestingly, the the word 
that's translated mystery in, in the New Testament, it speaks of something that is a secret beyond the reach of the natural human mind, but something which God has revealed and made clear to those who believe. So when Paul says here that he has made known to us the mystery of his will, what he's saying is God has let us in on a secret. It's a secret that, that other people don't know. And it's something that can't be discovered through, again, through just the, the, the human mind unaided. It, to, to discover this, to know and to understand this, you have to have the assistance of the Spirit. So a mystery is something that was previously hidden and unknowable uh, by man naturally, but it's something that God has now made known to those who believe in him. Sometimes you, you find people today, even without, uh, within the, uh, the Christian community, you find people who still talk about the faith as though it were a mystery. And they mean puzzling. They mean incomprehensible. They mean like, well, you know, the Christian faith is just so mysterious. We, we really don't know. Well, that, that's the wrong understanding of the word mystery. When the Bible speaks of mystery, it's not telling you that this is stuff that you can't know. It's not saying that this isn't for the average Christian person. You have to have a, a spiritual um, hierarchy that is you know, closer to God and therefore they, they have more you know, spiritual understanding and there's just this elite group and they have to interpret it for you. Some, some systems, that's the way they approach it. And they, they talk a lot about the mystery of the faith and what that means is, you know, it's kind of foggy. We're not quite clear. Nobody can really know. There's a few people that know. Uh, that's not the meaning of the word in the New Testament. The meaning of the word in the New Testament, as I said, is uh, it was previously unknown, but now God has made it known. So he's made it known to us. So he has made known to us the mystery of his will. Now, when we talk about the will of God, we often and rightfully we're talking about the will of God in relation to our own specific lives. We're, we're talking about God's will concerning uh, what he intends for me to do with my life. You know, where, uh, where I'm to live my life and who I'm to be together with and uh, what I'm to do as my vocation and things like that. And that's good and fine. And there are many places in scripture that refer to God's will in that way. But here, Paul is not talking about uh, God's will in that sense. He's talking about God's will in the larger sense of his eternal and universal purposes. So when he says that, that we have been, uh, or he's made known to us the mystery of his will, he's talking about the fact that God has let us in on the secret of where the cosmos is headed and where everything will ultimately reach its intended purpose. You see, according to the Bible, history is neither meaningless nor purposeless. It is moving toward a glorious end. History is not without meaning. It is not random. It is not without purpose. 
History is not just a bunch of disconnected events as some people see it, and especially many people today see it that way. Oh, it's just random. It, you know, there's no rhyme or reason to it. And of course, people say that that's true about life as well. They say, oh, well, you know, life doesn't really have any meaning. There is no purpose. These are the, you know, philosophically uh, oriented people, you know, tend to say these kinds of things. The, the interesting thing is they, they say that and they want it to be applied generally to everybody who's listening to them, but they really don't live according to that when it comes to their own personal experience. You know, the person who is very insistent that life is meaningless, if you turn around and apply that same truth to them, they say, well, wait, no, no, now, of course, that my life has meaning. My life has purpose. I'm significant. I'm important. So it's a good theory to hold, maybe, if you want to appear to be smart, but it doesn't really work in real life, as so many of these so-called intelligent theories Um, they're like that. History has a purpose. And God has given us, who believe in Christ, he has given us uh, an understanding of where things are headed. So this is what we know. This is part of the blessing of being uh, a child of God. One of the spiritual blessings is that we know the future. And think about how many people want to know the future. People pay to go to somebody that they think has the ability to tell them the future. People are always wondering, what about the future? I wonder where things are going. I wonder where it's all headed. I wonder what's going to happen. Well, God has let us in on that secret. He's told us where things are headed. And I I want you to notice this, though, that here in this... um, Ninth verse, he also says that this is all according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. Now, three times in this portion of scripture that we're looking at, verses 3 through 14, three different times Paul uses this kind of language. Previously, he said this, according to the good pleasure of his will. Now here, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, and A little bit later, he will say, according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his will. Paul is using this terminology here because what he's wanting us to understand is that God is sovereign. And when we say God is sovereign, what we mean is that God is in absolute control. And what God has determined is going to happen. And there's no possible way that it will be thwarted. It can't be stopped. God's will is unstoppable. As a matter of fact, there's a, uh, there are different Greek words that uh, we translate into English as will. And one of them is more the idea of desires or wishes. So say, for example, where we read that God is not willing that anyone should perish. God doesn't desire that anyone should perish. So we know people will perish, but God doesn't want that. But there's a, a, a stronger word that's also translated will from the Greek. And that word means his will as absolutely certain. It's, uh, it, it just cannot be 
uh, averted in any way, shape, or form. It, it is going to be accomplished. The things that we're talking about here, they are according to his good pleasure and according to the counsel of his will. And these things are absolutely certain. You can stake your very life on the things that are declared here. This is what is going to happen. This is where things are going. You want to know the future? Well, God tells us the future in the pages of the Bible. That's one of the amazing things about the Bible. The Bible tells us the future. It's the only religious book that tells us the future that can, and, and what it tells us can be tested over against reality. Now, other books claim to be, you know, prophetic in the sense of predictive or telling people about the future, but it, it's, it's all, you know, fanciful and obviously mythical and uh, it, it's very vague and it's just sort of general like, oh, you know, it's all going to be good later without any details. The Bible tells you the future and it gives you very specific details so that when it happens, you can look back and say, oh, amazing, it happened exactly like the Bible had said that it would happen. And we have tons of what we call fulfilled prophecy behind us that we can test and verify that, yes, indeed, the Bible said this hundreds of years before it happened, and this is what happened. This is how it happened. Yes, and it happened exactly like the Bible said. So having hundreds of uh, prophecies already fulfilled in history, we can look at the ones that are yet to be fulfilled, and we can have confidence that just like we saw those previous ones come to pass, we're going to see the ones that are still ahead of us come to pass because God is sovereign, because God is orchestrating the affairs of the world. He's leading history toward a glorious goal. So he has made known to us the mystery of his will. And just exactly what is that? Verse 10 tells us that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him. So this is God's ultimate purpose. The mystery of his will. What is it? That in the fullness of time, in the dispensation of the fullness of time, a dispensation means a period of time in which God works in a particular way. So right now we are, if you want to use the dispensational terminology, we could say we're in the dispensation of grace. God is working in the world right now and his, his, his uh, method is through grace. He's, he's saving men and women by grace. Uh, there, the, the dispensation of grace will, will end at a certain point. And there's a dispensation of wrath that will come. We talk about the great tribulation period. That would be the beginning of the dispensation of wrath. But then there's the dispensation, as he says here, it's the dispensation of the fullness of times. So now it's a dispensation of grace. There's a disposition, disposition of wrath coming. But then there's the disposition, uh, dispensation of the fullness of times. What is that? That's when he gathers together in one all things in Christ. That's where history's going. That's what God is working toward. 
as one Bible version translates it, the, the universe is being brought into unity in Christ. You see, the, the cosmos, the universe, is presently fragmented. There is discord in the universe presently, but that is going to be altered. One person translated this passage like this. He said, what is being described is the entire harmony of the universe, which shall no longer contain alien or discordant elements, but rather all the parts shall find their center and bond of union in Christ. See, right now the universe contains these discordant elements. There's fragmentation. There's, uh, There's a lack of harmony. But God's plan is to bring everything back into harmony under the immediate authority of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus is presently the ruler of the world, but he's ruling today, in a sense, from, from, from a distance. And you could say in some ways he, he's ruling indirectly. He's allowing things to happen that aren't out of his control, but they're not, uh, in a sense, under his immediate control in that his will is not being done. But there's coming a day when his uh, rule is going to be immediately over everything. There will be no discord. There will be no other wills. There will be no other voices. There will be no uh, further uh, division or opposition. That's where things are headed. And that's the mystery that God has made known to us. The mystery of his will to bring everything under the authority of Christ. Now, I have to mention this real briefly. When it says all things, that in the dispensation of the fullness of time, uh, that he might gather together in one in Christ, all things. So when we say all things, when we read all things here, does that include Satan, demons, and unrepentant sinners? Now, I bring this up because this is becoming a popular view again today. This is known as universalism, and it was popular at various times throughout history. It, you know, these things kind of, um, they come to the surface and they're popular for a while, and then they, they, they sort of submerge, and then they, they resurface at certain points. And universalism is, is beginning to resurface a bit. And this is the reason why it's resurfacing. Because people in our culture are so adamantly opposed to the idea of a God who judges sin. They're so appalled by the suggestion that there is a hell and things like that. Because that's the mentality out in the culture, uh, people in the church, theologians and so forth, wanting to accommodate and wanting to please people, they say, well, well, wait a second. No, you know, it's, it's not as bad as you think. Look, you know, actually in the end, God's going to work it all out and nobody's ever going to get judged. And there, there really isn't a hell and nobody's going to go to hell. And even Satan himself, even 
he will be brought back into God's family and we'll all live one happy, eternal life together. And they say, look, right here it says it. It says all things. What could all things possibly mean except all things? Must mean everything. Well, no, it doesn't mean that. Because you see, you can't take one little statement of scripture and use it to oppose the rest of what the Bible says. You have to fit it into the totality of the biblical message. This is how people come up with false teaching. They take one thing out of its context and then they build their view around the one thing. The Bible is clear that there are going to be those who are outside where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth versus those who are inside where there is blessing. So what does it mean then when it says that all things in heaven and earth are gonna be brought together under the authority of Christ? It's referring to those who presently are here on earth who are in Christ and those who presently are in Christ but are in heaven. We're all in Christ, but we're separated presently by space and time. There's coming a day when Jesus is going to bring heaven and earth together and believers in heaven and believers on earth are going to be united into one big, glorious, eternal family. And included in that will undoubtedly be the holy angels and whatever other uh, creatures there might be in heaven. There's angels, which the word simply means messengers. There's cherubim, there's seraphim. We don't know the details of all that. But, but that's what's being talked about. So universalism is not a biblical truth. It is a, a distortion of the truth. And it's a compromise with those who just simply do not want to believe what the Bible says. So this is what Paul is reminding us of here. One of our many spiritual blessings is that we have been let in on this secret. We know the future. We know where things are headed. We know how the story ends and we know it ends beautifully. We really do live happily ever after. It's not a fairy tale. It's reality. It's reality. Now, someone might say, well, sounds like a fairy tale to me. Give me some evidence that this is really happening. I, I can't see anything. Doesn't look to me like everything is, is moving toward this, this glorious end that you're talking about. I, I can't see anything that indicates that that's really the case. Well, it's because you're not looking hard enough. There, there are lots of things, but I'll give you one thing. I'll give you one thing that to me, irrefutably shows the sovereignty of God over history. It's one thing. There are many things, but, but I'm just going to give you one. 
Think about this, ponder it, study it. It's one people group. It's one nation. It's the Jewish people. It's the land of Israel. You see, the Jews themselves, the fact that they're living in their ancient homeland, this defies It defies everything we know historically from a natural standpoint. It only makes sense if the Bible's true because what has happened to Israel historically is exactly what the Bible said would happen to them thousands of years ago. And it's happened just exactly like the scripture said. 2,700 years ago, God showed Ezekiel the prophet a valley full of dry bones. He said, Ezekiel, can these bones be made to live? Ezekiel said, Lord, you know. Doesn't look like it to me. God said, these, these dry bones, this is the whole house of Israel. And this is what Israel sees itself as, a valley of, of, of dry bones. But God goes on and he brings those bones together. He gives this vision to Ezekiel. He brings those bones together and they, they come together as a skeleton. And then he puts uh, the muscle and the sinew and then the skin And then ultimately he breathes life into it and he says, I'm going to bring them out of their graves. 2,700 years ago, that was prophesied. Or 2,600 years ago. 600 years after that, the Jews were driven from their homeland and they were out of their land for 2,000 years. 2,000 years. That is so long. I mean, you know, think about it. Our nation is only 200 and, what is it, 238 years old now. That's how old we are as a nation. 238 years. I mean, think back to our founding fathers. You think of George Washington or Thomas Jefferson or Madison or Hamilton or, or, you know, Ben Franklin or these guys. I mean, these guys are like from the ancient past. You know, they just, man, those guys lived a long time ago, right? Well, that's only 238 years ago. The Jews were out of their land for 2,000 years. But just like the prophets declared, God would bring them back. They would appear to be as hopeless as a valley of dry bones. But God brought them back together. And when you look at just the history of Israel, when you look at the history of the Jewish people, this is where you clearly see the hand of God directing history. And you say, okay, well, that's fine, but what what in the world do the Jews have to do with Jesus? Well, Jesus is the king of the Jews. He's the king that the nation rejected, but he's the king that will come back to reign over that nation from Jerusalem. And it is then that all things in heaven and on earth will be brought together under his authority. The church in heaven, the church on earth, the holy angels, the ancient people of God, Israel, who will no doubt be in a sense connected to the church, but yet at the same time, there's that distinction. So you see, We have evidence. Those who say that, oh, it's all random, it's going nowhere, it means nothing, 
They, they don't have any proof of that. That's just their theory. We say, no, history's going in a direction. There, there's a plan. There's a beginning. There's an end. And, and we've got things that we can point to, things that were written centuries ago but are happening before our very eyes. And so, in closing, three things I want to leave you with real quickly because I only have two minutes. So that's why we're changing the time after Easter. So I'm not continually running behind time. Number one, history is not random. It is purposeful and heading in a God-ordained direction. Number two, your life is not random. It is purposeful. Your life has meaning. God created you with a purpose. And for those of us who are in Christ, God is leading our lives. God is leading your life. He's leading you into the things that he ordained for you to walk in. He has included you in his eternal story, and he has let you know in advance how it all turns out. See, this is one of the great practical applications of this whole thing about the will of God. It's that, you know, my life does have meaning. My life does have purpose. You might look at yourself and say, well, you know, I, I feel like I'm worthless. I, you know, like my life is insignificant. No, it's not. God created you. He created you with a purpose. If you're in Christ, you know that. You're beginning to know that. You're starting to understand that. If you're not in Christ, you're outside of that purpose, but you can come inside by receiving Christ. And then thirdly and finally, there's no need to worry or fear. God has everything in control. God has it all in control. You know, when we look at the world, you ever look and wonder where in the world is it all headed? It just seems to be getting crazier all the time. And that can easily strike fear in us. But if we understand that, no, you know what? It's all going to be good. God's already declared it. He's promised it. He's shown us the the end from the beginning. He's told us that everything is going to come under the authority of Christ ultimately. So I have no need to worry or fear. I can just rest in the fact that God is in control. And I can do that with world affairs. And I can do that with my own personal life as well. That's the blessing. I can do it on both levels because it's true on both levels. God has a universal will that he's working out and it's unstoppable. And because you're God's child, he has a will for you and he's working that out as well. And you just need to rest in him, trust him and let him bring to pass what he intends. That to me is very comforting. Remember those last words of the psalm. Be still and know that I am God. Lord, thank you that you have made known to us the mystery of your will. Lord, that you've let us in on this secret. How we thank you for that. Lord, that we don't have to live in suspense. We don't have to be fretting or worrying about what the future holds because you've already told us what it holds. 
that you're going to bring everybody in heaven and earth together, all who are in Christ together in him, to love and experience you and one another forever. Oh, how we thank you for that, Lord. Lord, I pray that that great truth would penetrate our hearts and our minds here today. And Lord, I pray if there's a single person with us that is yet to come into that place where they're in Christ, where these blessings are theirs personally, Lord, would you draw them to yourself today? And if you're with us today and you're, you're hearing about these great promises and blessings, but you know that you're not really a, a partaker of them because you haven't yet put your faith in Christ. But you're here today, obviously. You've been brought here by the Lord. And he wants to bring you into his family. And he wants to pour out these blessings on you. He wants to give you understanding. He wants to give you hope for the future. So if you're here today and you've never received Christ and you'd like to, like you just to slip your hand up where you're at and we're gonna pray for you. And you can meet the Lord, your maker and your redeemer today, and you can get into his will and his plan for your life. And you can have the confidence that when it's all said and done, you're going to be with him in the end in eternity. Anybody at all, just slip your hand up where you're at and we'll pray with you. Lord, we thank you for your grace, for your continued call out to anyone who is thirsty, anyone who will hear and respond to come and drink of the water of life. And Lord, we pray for those that responded today that you would draw them to yourself. And Lord, for those of us that know you, may we be established more solidly in these great truths. Thank you that you have let us in on your secret. Thank you, Lord, that we know where it's headed and that you're in control. Amen.